As a rule, the beginning and the end of a Masechta, a tractate in the Gemara, will always be linked to each other. Here we're going to have a look at the Gemara Yuma. The reason we're doing it at this time of the year is because the Parsha Achrei Mois speaks about exactly the same theme, how Yom Kippur was observed in the Beis Hamikdash. And we start off by learning that in order for a Kohen Gadol to serve in the Beis Hamikdash on Yom Kippur, he had to be married. And we learn it from the Pasuk that says that he atones for himself and for his household. Beisoy, his household or his house itself, that refers to his wife. So we need to understand, is that something that is required for Yom Kippur or is it something about the status and the, so to speak, completion of the Kohen Gadol himself? To understand that, we're going to look at a Gemara in Shabbos where we have Rabbi Yoisi who says that he never referred to his wife as my wife but rather as my home, indicating that the whole perception he had of marriage was that it's in order to build a home. That was his focus and that is considered a very high level of how a person dedicates themselves to Hashem. We don't just recognize that everything happens for a reason. We have to serve Hashem, but we see within every single experience a means to serve Hashem. That is a status that a person can achieve, and that is the status the Kohen Gadol had to have on Yom Kippur. We're then going to link that to the end of the, tra- of the tractate, the Masechta, where we have the words of Rabbi Akiva, that Hashem is like a mikveh to us, just as a mikveh, atones or purifies people from impurity, so Hashem purifies us from our sins. We'll have a few questions about that because it seems that Rabbi Akiva gives us more information than we need, and we'll see that it's actually a correlation. Rabbi Akiva wants to indicate that there's something fundamental and intrinsic about our purity and about our Judaism, which is reflected in that particular expression of Hashem atoning for us, and so much so that even when we put in effort, much like there's something intrinsic about the Kohen Gadol, on Yom Kippur, that he's an individual who sees the world in a particular way. There's something intrinsic about being Jewish that links us and aligns us with what Hashem says and wants from us. Even when we're not behaving exactly as we should, and even if we're only in a position to repair some of our problems and not all of them. It says in our parish of this week about the avoid of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. One of the things he has to do is to atone for himself and for his home, for his household. And so the Gemara tells us that when it says Beisoy, his home, it actually means his wife. From which we learn that a Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur has to be married. And it's interesting that we say that because there seems to be a big irony in the, the idea that he has to be married because just before he goes to work in the Beis Amikdash, we separate him from his wife. So why? Why is this a thing? Why is it important for him to be married? This notion, this halachic parameter that a Kohen Gadol has to be married applies only on Yom Kippur and no other time of the year. During the rest of the year, a Kohen Gadol can participate in any service that he chooses to participate in in the Beis Hamikdash, even if he's not married. In fact, not only can he participate, but whenever he chooses to participate, he takes priority over all the other Kohanim on duty at the time. But yet, we find that there is no requirement that he has to be married, even though, of course, the Torah does say that it's a mitzvah for him to to marry, and specifically to marry a basula, a virgin. But we don't find that in order for him to serve any other time of the year, he has to be married. So therefore, we have to understand why. What's the link between being married and serving on Yom Kippur? Really, we have to understand and explain what's going on over here. Surely, the avoid of Yom Kippur is like the most elevated, holy avoid that a person could ever have at any time. It's a confluence of all the greatest expressions of holiness that exist. It's the holiest day, it's the holiest place, it's the holiest person. As the expression goes, that it's geography, time, and human, or soul, that all have to be in their highest state on Yom Kippur. So it's a very elevated experience. Koyen Gadol in the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur. The avoid of Yom Kippur takes place in the holiest spot on earth, the Kodesh HaKadoshim. On the holy day, which is how we colloquially refer to Yom Kippur. 
ועל ידי הכהן גודל, שהגודל מכל הכהנים ואלף נאמר, ויבודל להקדיש הקדוש קדושים. And who is the protagonist? It's the כהן גודל. Out of a class of people who are already holy, he is the holiest who is separated from everybody else to become קדוש קדושים. היינו שהוא גודל מהם גם בקדושה, כמו שנאמר, והכהן הגודל מאחוב גוימר, כי אני אבי מקדשוי. As we describe the Kohen Gadol being the one who is Gadol Me'echot. That's why it's called the Kohen Gadol. He is greater than all the other Kohanim. So it's this confluence of all this incredible spiritual energy, this holiness on the day of Yom Kippur. It's the holiest place, the holiest time, the holiest person. So if we're dealing with something so elevated, So you do have to wonder why, when we're dealing with the holiest expression of service of Hashem, why Dafke is that where the Kohen Gadol has to be married. The truth is, it's even more surprising when you look at the context, because one of the preparations for Yom Kippur, which is actually mentioned in the same Mishnah that tells us that he has to be married, he, that Shiva Siyam Afrishan Kohen Goldomi Beis, of Yachim Zeis, Beis is a Yishtoi, who at Nai Likuva, Bechen Gold, Dafka Bechem Akipurim. It's so bizarre. For seven days before Yom Kippur, we Dafka separate the Kohen Goldom from his wife, from his family, and yet in the same breath we say it's critical for him to have have that wife in order for him to serve on Yom Kippur. So why? What's the connection? Therefore, you have no choice. It must be that marriage, having a wife, is something intrinsic, inherent, fundamental to being a Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. So it's very clear that there's something about the completion of the role of Kohen Gadol that hinges on him being married at that point in time. We have to understand what that is and why that is. And we'll explore that there are two possibilities. Is it something that Yom Kippur requires or is it something that tells you about the nature of a Kohen Gadol? So there are two possible explanations that we can give why the Kohen Gadol would need to be married in order to uh, serve on Yom Kippur. Um, <coughs> number one is, One possibility is it's a Yom Kippur requirement because it's such an important day, therefore he has to be married to qualify to serve on such an important day. So first of all, that would lend itself because it's such an important time with such important avoida. Who has to be the one to work? A koyein gadol, not just any ordinary koyein. So that already tells you that to facilitate this spectacular kind of avoida, you need to be a special person. And then, once we're on that theme, we'll say, not only can it not be an ordinary koyein, it has to be a koyein gadol. Not only can it be an ordinary koyein gadol, it has to be a married koyein gadol. So that's option number one. Yom Kippur requires the highest caliber of individual, therefore the koyein gadol has to be married. Or or alternatively, it's a halacha with regards to the Kohen Gadol himself, not with regards to the role that he's playing on that particular day. <coughs> Maybe there's an expectation that the Kohen Gadol has to be the ultimate Kohen Gadol on this particular day. So not that the avoider requires it, he requires it. He on this particular day has to be in the most incredible spiritual state. In other words, what we're saying is the Kohen Gadol may at different times or even in different periods of history have different levels of Kohen Gadol. There were times that the Kohen Gadol was anointed into the position. That's like the ultimate state of a Kohen Gadol. There are other times where they didn't have the Shem and Amishcha in the second base Amigdash. And so it was just because he wore the extra four garments of the Kohen Gadol. So we see that the Kohen Gadol himself could have different statuses. <coughs> So possibly what the Torah wants us to know is that on this day of Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol has to be of a particular status, namely a Kohen Gadol with a wife. What's the practical difference? There's actually a practical legal difference that may occur if this is something that Yom Kippur requires or if it's something that the Kohen Gadol requires in terms of his own status. 
Because we are Kippurim, Yeshnam Gamma Avoidus and Nasis Bechol Yoim Shena Shayochus Yom Kippurim Dafka. There are a whole lot of things that occur on Yom Kippur that occurred other days as well. For example, Gagoyin Akravasat Midim Akdoras 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 like the Tomit Shal Shachar, the Tomit Shal Ben Arboim, the daily sacrifices that had to be brought, the Keturus that was brought every single day, the preparation of the menorah that happened every single day. Now, Vagamma Avoidus Eilu, Nasis Bechol Yom Kippurim Aldea Koyin Godel. Now, the nature of Yom Kippur is that the Kohen Gadol did everything, even activities that ordinarily another Kohen could do, and Yom Kippur, he has to do them all. Now, even though, of course, it goes without saying that the fact that today's Yom Kippur means that the ordinary Tomichel Shachar, or cleaning the menorah and preparing the wicks for the Hadlaka menorah, even though it's ordinary, because it's Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur has an influence over it and kind of upgrades all of those avoiders. It goes without saying, it's different to an ordinary Wednesday. Now it's Yom Kippur. Something special is happening in every single fabric of the experience of the of service in the Beis HaMikdash. But everybody will acknowledge that there's obviously a difference between an avoider that you do every day of the year and an avoider that you only do on Yom Kippur by going into the Kodesh HaKadosh which is why we may have a practical halachic difference. If we go with the first view, the view that <coughs> Yom Kippur requires a Kohen Gadol who is married, then if theoretically the Kohen Gadol ends up not being married, let's say, God forbid, his wife dies on Yom Kippur, he is technically entitled to do those avoiders which are daily or regular in the Beis Amikdash and not Yom Kippur specific because it's Yom Kippur that requires a married Kohen Gadol. Whereas if we go according to the second possible explanation, which is the one we're going to stick with, that it's not that Yom Kippur requires a married Kohen Gadol, it's that the Kohen Gadol himself requires the status of being married in order for him to serve on this day, then, then he wouldn't be able to do any of the service in the Beis Amikdash, including the things that are daily services, he would not be able to do on Yom Kippur if he was not married. So as I say, we're going with the second, as you'll see, we're going to stick with the second explanation. In other words, our understanding is that the Kohen Gadol's status is what we're discussing over here, not the requirement that Yom Kippur may have of him on the day. <clears throat> Well, take a look at the Rambam. You see immediately that the Rambam goes with the second view because he says, The Rambam makes it very clear that all of the activities that have to take place inside the Beis Hamikdash on the day of Yom Kippur, including those that occur daily, have to be done, in his words, by a Kohen Gadol who is married. So there you have it. We go with the second view. Why does a Kohen Gadol need to be married on Yom Kippur? Because on this particular day, he needs to have a certain status. He needs a status of himself. What status? Married. Now we need to understand why. So in order to understand this, we're going to ask a very obvious question. Why does the Mishnah go and tell us Beisoy means his wife? Well, surely if the Torah wanted to say wife, the Torah could have said wife. Let's work it out. If the Torah wanted us to know that the Kohen Gadol has to atone for himself and his wife, why does it call his wife Beisoy? Why doesn't it just call his wife the normal Hebrew term Ishtoy? Usually the way that it works is Scripture speaks succinctly and the oral Torah expands and explains things that we wouldn't have known on our own. As the expression goes, there's nothing that is not hinted at in the written word of the Torah. Now, here, we don't see that happening. 
something doesn't add up over here. The Torah uses one word, Beisoi. The Torah gives one word explanation, Ishtoi. Okay, so it's one word for one word. Why didn't the Torah just say one word, Ishtoi? So we have to understand, Torah language is incredibly specific. Why does the Torah use the expression Beisoi to describe the wife of the Kohen Gadol with regards to Yom Kippur? It must be intentional. It must be that the Torah wants us to know more than just the fact that it needs to have a spouse. The Torah wants us to know something about the nature of the Kohen Gadol's wife, which is represented by this word, specifically, Beisoi. The Torah is not just telling us practically that the Kohen Gadol has to be married, Rather, and in his book, Gamsha Yisaydikachushadafke biyoisay nasu yeshla amaylam yichedes shalishtoi ke beisoy. The Torah is obviously indicating to us that by virtue of the Kohen Gadol being married, he will then have this unique title, this unique wholesomeness of a family, of a house represented, a home represented by his wife. Now we have to understand why that is, and in order to do that, we'll look at Rabbi Yosi in the Gemara Shabbos. To appreciate what is unique about saying that a person's wife is his home. So let's look at Rabbi Yossi. I'm Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi says, I never refer to my wife as my wife. I only refer to her as my home. I never refer to my ox as my ox. I only refer to my ox as my field. Rashi. Rashi explains, Ishti Beisi Shehi Ikra Shalbayis. Rashi explains, what does it mean that he said he only referred to his wife as his home? To indicate that his wife was the underpinning, the foundation of his home. Ola Shari Sadi, and why did he refer to his ox as his field? Because at the end of the day, a, an ox is the core of how your field comes to be usable. Because you produce harvest thanks to the ox that pulls the plow that allows you to plant your fields. So at first glance, this is a bit difficult to understand. If you have a look in the Gemara over there, Rabbi Yossi actually speaks a number of times on the page. And each time he speaks about things that a person should emulate, that a person should try and instill in their lives, ways to behave, perspectives that you should have on life. Now, the fact that all of these suggestions of Rabbi Yossi are listed in a row implies that there's got to be some kind of common thread that runs through all of them. So very simply, the common thread is that he's speaking about a better way of doing things, a better way of looking at things. So what is unique about looking at one's wife as one's home instead of just saying, my wife? What's he teaching us? So what we're going to learn is Rabbi Yossi is teaching us that a Jewish person should look at the world and specifically at those things that are very much part of our lives, like one's own family, with a higher purpose in mind. Rabbi Yossi wanted to illustrate to us how he perceived his entire approach to life, his entire perspective on the purpose of the world. Besides the fact that Rabbi Yossi recognized that the world is not adrift, the world has an owner, and we have a responsibility to the one who created the world. So, therefore, as the expression goes in Pirkei Avos, not only did he recognize that every single thing that Hashem created in the world is there in order for us to increase the honor and respect that we give to Hashem, what was unique about Rabbi Yossi is that he didn't just see that everything could be used to serve Hashem. He only saw things as they are used to serve Hashem. 
He didn't see them independently of that. Like you and I, for example, might say there's something called money, money you could use to spend on yourself. It is also possible to use it to, be, to buy a beautiful pair of tefillin or to give a lot of tzedakah. Rabbi Yossi would look at money and only see it as a way to have a magnificent Shabbos and to give a lot of tzedakah, for example. Vadkteikach, it was so compelling and clear to him, Add to the extent So the names that Rabbi Yossi would apply to things would be the names that indicated how he, in his world view, perceived these particular things. So therefore, in his world, you can't, he couldn't call his wife my wife. My wife is personal. What does she add to me? How does she make me happy? He looked at his wife and said, how does my wife play this pivotal role in producing what Hashem wants in this world? Building a home. As far as Rabbi Yossi was concerned, we marry so that we should be able to produce children, to be able to establish a Jewish home, to be able to create in our space a home for Hashem. That's, that's what a Jewish home is. So he looks at his wife. He doesn't see his wife as a self-serving partner who's going to make me feel good and cook me meals. He looks at his wife and he immediately detects my wife is the foundation on which I can do what my purpose is in this world to serve Hashem. She facilitates the most incredible opportunity for me that I would be unable to achieve on my own. This is similar to the very interesting insight from early Talmudic scholars about why don't we say a bracha when we get married just before the groom puts the ring onto the bride's finger he doesn't say a bracha I'm about to fulfill the mitzvah of sanctifying this woman and, and, and making a wedding as if there's a mitzvah to make a wedding logically you would expect such a bracha why don't we do it like for any other mitzvah where you're supposed to say a bracha so the answer that's given by the Rishonim is The answer that's given is because at the end of the day, Kiddushin, marriage, is just a gateway to the real purpose and the real mitzvah, which is to have a family and to establish a Jewish home. So you never say a bracha on something prior to being able to actually do it, like you don't say a bracha on building the sukkah, because the mitzvah is, that's just a gateway to fulfill the mitzvah of sitting in a sukkah. So you don't make a, a brocha over the wedding because that's just a gateway to the real mitzvah, which is to establish a family. So from that perspective, the way Rabbi Yossi looks at his wife, my wife is not just my, my sidearm. My wife is not just my partner. My wife is the opportunity, the gateway to fulfill exactly why Hashem put me into this world. So he sees his wife as his whole home, as his everything. Everything is contingent on her. This distinguishes Rabbi Yossi from his colleagues, from his peers. The fact that Rabbi Yossi says, I never called my wife my wife, implies that his peers did, because they sometimes saw their wives in the context of wife, and sometimes in the context of builder of the family, builder of the Jewish home. And he was unique. He only saw his wife in the context of how she is part of how we serve Hashem. It's an incredible partnership that we have to serve Hashem rather than this partnership just to, to be happy and grow old together. Now, the other peers, they were not off the rails. What they did and the way they perceived their relationship was aligned with Torah because we see that Torah creates space for a person to take a year of their life and dedicate themselves completely to their wife and make her happy. And this, this is before children arrive. So the Torah completely accepts the reality that a husband has a responsibility to his wife as his wife. In fact, if you have a look, you're going to find a fair amount of uh, Torah literature that indicates that a person, a man, has a responsibility to his wife to make her happy, to buy her beautiful things for Yom Tov, to ensure that they live a lifestyle that brings godliness into their life. So it's absolutely acceptable. Rabbi Yossi is unique. Rabbi Yossi is in a different, a different league. He's flying at a different spiritual altitude. 
Rabbi Yossi had a very different and unique approach. Rabbi Yossi said, all these things are fine and good, and, and if you want to live your life that way, that's a completely acceptable and even encouraged according to Torah. Live a life where you love your wife and you care for your wife, 100%. Rabbi Yossi says, for me, I, I see beyond that. I see that the entire process of marriage is focused on one thing only. How do we serve Hashem through this particular medium? And that's by having children and establishing a Jewish home. So I see my wife as part of this pathway to Hashem. That's how he saw it. So therefore, right from the get-go, Rabbi Yossi saw Ishti, not as Ishti, as Basi. He saw straight away that Ishti, marriage, the concept of marriage, is a gateway to be able to serve Hashem in this very unique way of building a Jewish home. Just to give us a little bit of an inkling of how Rabbi Yossi saw things differently to his peers is the saying of our sages, who's truly wise, the person who can see the outcome of choices in advance. The simplest explanation is that somebody who's wise can work out what the later consequences of the current decisions will be. But that's not really what it says. But if you have a look, our sages didn't say who is wise, a person who understands the possible consequences of choices. It says who sees that's a lot more powerful and tangible than something that you just understand. That means that to be a chacham is that you're able to see things now that other people will only be able to see once they happen. And that's kind of how Rabbi Yossi is. Everybody will reach a point in their life where they'll turn around and say, wow. Thanks to my wife, we have this beautiful family. Thanks to my wife, we have this beautiful set of values in that family. Thanks to my wife, we have this beautiful home that we live in. Rabbi Yossi was able to see that right from the beginning. And not beautiful in the sense of having nice furniture and, and, and well-mannered children, but beautiful in the sense of this is what Hashem's purpose is, to be able to create a Jewish home. Now, still talking about the Shacham Aroya Esanoilat, we know very well that you can never compare something that you've just heard to something which you see with your own eyes. You know that for sure. If you've heard a story of little green men that land, landed in somebody's house, you think, ah, whatever. But if you see them in your garden, well, you might start wondering what you've been drinking, but it's very compelling because you've seen it. The truth is that hearing something can, can actually be very compelling. Look at Yisroi as an example. He heard things about the Jewish people and it changed his entire life. He abandoned his position in Midian. He came to join the Jewish people. He became Jewish because of something he heard. Hearing can be very real and very tangible and very compelling. Yet, take Yisrael as the example, and you'll see, as much as Yisrael had heard all the wonderful things about the Jewish people, he felt that he had to see it for himself. Because you can never compare the reality of seeing something to the doubts that you have when you've heard something. That's what's so unique about the Chacham. That his intellect is so acute that he is able to see things that the rest of us can possibly just understand in abstract. And we have to wait for it to unfold before we actually see it. So, okay, so that's Rabbi Yossi, right? Rabbi Yossi is able to see the value and purpose in every element of life, including this element called marriage, unlike the rest of us who will get there over time. But in the, in the now we see, a, a, you know, marriage itself has a value, just being with a partner, having a good friend, having this loving relationship. Rabbi Yossi is able to see right through all of that and see immediately therein lies the purpose of why Manashama came down into this world. And to give us context of that, you see that Rabbi Yossi's statement about how he referred to and perceived his wife follows immediately after his statement about how he perceived his children. Because, what does it say? He says, I had five uh, interactions, five uh, relations 
with my wife, of which I established five cedar trees in Israel. There you can see it straight away. That shows you how Rabbi Yossi perceives the world. Because Look at how he looks at it. He's not giving us the breakdown on how many times he and his wife are intimate. He just sees one thing. There were five times that we conceived children, and that's what counts. Because those children became great scholars in their own right, the so-called cedars of Israel, and that's what counts. So you can see there Rabbi Yossi's perception. Rabbi Yossi sees the value of what spiritual outcome will, will, will emerge from a particular interaction or relationship, much more than the physical experience. So how does he look at his wife? Not as wife, what's the spiritual outcome? Basie, she's going to build this home that I'll be privileged to be part of, to fulfill the, the uh, mission that I have in this world. Now, Rabbi Yossi didn't only see that with regard to his wife, Yeser Al-Kain. Not only was Rabbi Yossi in a position to detect the spiritual value in a person, and not just any person, but a wonderful Jewish woman. More than that, he was even able to see the spiritual value in a totally uh, lesser um, life form in an animal. That's why he looks at his ox and he doesn't see an ox. He sees a spiritual value and purpose in the ox. When he looked at the ox, he wasn't just looking at the ox, he was looking at his field and all the produce that the field would produce, meaning to say that the same perception of spiritual value that he had in his own family and those who were closest to him, he had in everything that was involved in his life, including the ox, including the, the crops that the ox would produce. So, so he looked at the ox and what did he see? What the ox will produce. The ox will plow the field, therefore he can plant and therefore he can harvest. And that's actually the purpose of the ox. And in the same way as when he looked at his wife, he immediately saw the tachlis and value when he looked at his ox, he immediately saw the tachlis and the value, even before he started to plow the field. Right? Um, and therefore, That's why he was never able, never, never in my life was I ever able to call my ox my ox, because I could never see it just as an ox. I could only see it as a gateway to an incredible opportunity, which is to produce whatever it is that he had to produce, and of course all the mitzvahs that are associated with uh, having a field in Israel, etc., etc. So Mikola now, this all from Rabbi Yossi will help us to contextualize why the Torah specifically refers to the Kohen Gadol's wife as Beisi, as uh, Beisoy, as his home, instead of just simply saying his wife. Why? Now we can start to understand what the big deal is about a Kohen Gadol being married on Yom Kippur. And not just to be married, but specifically the Torah says to be married in such a way that he sees his wife as Beisoy, as his mainstay, as his home, as his purpose in this world. It's not enough for the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur just to be married. The Torah wants him to have a certain perception of that marriage. The Torah wants him to look at his wife like Rabbi Yossi looked at his wife and see all the value and the spiritual purpose in that marriage rather than just to see the marriage. It's interesting because the Gemara tells us that a person who does not have a house is not really a person. There's something fundamentally lacking in the, in the humanity of a person who doesn't have a house. Now that we understand that house actually means a family, it actually means a wife and a family, we come to understand that having this wife, and having this wife who he perceives for all her spiritual value, makes the Kohen Gadol a wholesome person. Ah, 
That's what we wanted, right? Because we said there were two possibilities. Does the Kohen Gadol need to be married because Yom Kippur requires it? Or does the Kohen Gadol need to be married because he has to be wholesome? We saw from the Rambam that it's he who has to be wholesome. Because even in the activities which are not directly related to Yom Kippur, on the day, we need a married Kohen Gadol. So we're looking for something that's going to tell us about his greatness, his status. Here we have it. What's the greatness and status of a Kohen Gadol, somebody who can see the tachlis, the value, the spiritual input and, and outcome from having a wife, from being married. That's why the Torah specifically said his home rather than his wife. We, we only get the hint in Torah We have to look at Torah to expand the hint. What does Beisoi mean? Comes along Rabbi Yosei and explains to us Beisoi means the Kohen Gadol has to be somebody of the caliber who does not see his wife in plain and simple terms, but he sees right through to the essence of what marriage is all about and its spiritual value and why Hashem created such a system. That's a person who is great enough to serve in the Kodesh HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur. Now that we understand that the fact that a Kohen Gadol has to be married on Yom Kippur is not just a detail of the necessary prerequisites to serve on Yom Kippur, but rather it is a statement of the wholesomeness of the status of the Kohen Gadol. So therefore, as we noted earlier, there are two possibilities. We're going with a second possibility. This is not a detail of the laws of Yom Kippur. It's a fundamental component of the law of being a Kohen Gadol. That explains the first Mishnah, or at least this particular part of the first Mishnah of Yuma. But this is a Siyum that the Rebbe made, and so we're now going to link it to the last part. There's always a, a relationship and connection between the beginning and end of a Masechta. That's why usually when we do a conclusion of a Gemara, we try and find exactly that link between the beginning and end of the tractate. So we're going to see that here in Yuma too. This idea of that that's the qualification of a Kohen Gadol, that it's a, an expression of who he is, so it expresses the essence of the character of the Kohen Gadol, that is linked in. This has a link and connection to the final Mishnah at the end of Yuma, which says, So Rabbi Akiva says, quite a famous expression. You are so lucky, so fortunate, the Jewish people. Uh, who do you stand in front of to purify yourselves? And who purifies you? Avicham Shabbat your father in heaven, Shenem, and he brings two psukim. One pasuk is, that Hashem says, I will spray on you holy waters or pure waters and purify you. Another pasuk says, Mikveh Yisrael Hashem, that Hashem is like our mikveh. Play on words, because mikveh could also mean our hope and our optimism, but of course, in its most literal sense, it's a mikveh. Ma mikveh Just like a mikveh purifies those who are impure, so Hashem impu- uh, purifies the Jewish people. Now, in a moment, we're going to take this Mishnah apart. There are many, many details that we have to ask about this particular Mishnah and the way that uh, Rabbi Akiva says it. We'll start with, uh, with three to start. So straight away we have to ask a, a number of questions about what Rabbi Akiva says. We'll first ask questions and then diukim. We'll look at nuances in the language that Rabbi Akiva uses. First of all, what's he telling us that we don't already know? Second of all, why is he digging up psukim that come from so far down the road in Tanakh, surely there are other places that we could find the same source, much easier, in Torah itself. And thirdly, why do we need two psukim to prove this point? So, Aleph, what's Rabbi Kiva teaching us that we don't already know? When he's talking here about Hashem 
purifying us. It's not talking about from Tumah, that, that Hashem purifies you instead of a mikveh. We're talking about Averis. Who else is going to purify us from Averis if not Hashem? There are so many places in the Torah that tell us that only Hashem is the one who's going to help us and, and clear the slate for us. So what's Rabbi Kiva telling us that we don't know? More specifically. Actually, just before Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Lozim and Azariah said pretty much the same thing. So, besides the fact that this is a principle we already know, it sounds like Rabbi Akiva is repeating something that was just said. What does the Mishnah say? With regards to Yom Kippur, the Pasuk says clearly that Yom Kippur is a day where you can purify yourself from all of your sins, in front of Hashem. And then he explains, If it's an Avera between a man and Hashem, then Yom Kippur clears the slate automatically. Whereas, But if you have an issue with another person, Yom Kippur does not help until you make amends with that person. Now, the fact that Rabbi Eloz ben Azariah just told us that the purification that takes place and the atonement on Yom Kippur is in front of Hashem, it's pretty clear then that who atones, who purifies us, Hashem. So what is Rebbe Kiva telling us that Rabbi Lozim Azariah didn't just say? Rabbi Lozim Azariah says, Hashem, Hashem will purify you. Comes along Rabbi Akiva and he says, guess what? Hashem will purify you. Okay, didn't we already know that? Base number two. The that the surprise we have at Rabbi Akiva's approach is even greater because why does Rabbi Akiva go looking through the books of Nevi'im to find proof that Hashem will purify us? Because it be a cheskel. First he quotes a pasuk in cheskel, and then and then even that's not good enough, and he brings a second pasuk from Yirmiyah. It's a pasuk in Chumash, as Rabbi Lozab and Azariah just told us, and it's a pasuk about Yom Kippur, which is the context of this conversation. Why does Rabbi Akiva feel we need more psukim? It's clear. It says you will be purified in front of Hashem. Actually, Rabbi Akiva said there are two parts to how it works. In front of who are you purified? And who purifies you? Guess what? The Pasuk from Akramois is actually the Pasuk that seems to be the best one to suit Rabbi Akiva's statement. He said, in front of whom do you purify? The Pasuk said, He said, Who will purify you? The Pasuk said, Hashem will purify you. So why does he look for other Pesukim? He's got exactly what he needs in Rabbi Lozban Azariah's quotation. It's a Pasuk in Chumash. Simple. Let's not try and say it's because Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Lozman Azariah had different practical views on how exactly all of this works. Because, for example, don't say that Rabbi Akiva believes that Hashem will forgive you of a misdeed to another person, even if you haven't asked their forgiveness. Maybe that's why he can't bring the Pasuk because he disagrees with Rabbi, Rabbi Lozim and Azari how the Pasuk works. No, that's impossible. Anybody who's familiar with basic language of Gemara knows that when it says, um, Rabbi Akiva, it's not an argument with what was said before. If it was an argument, it would have said, Rabbi Akiva, Omer, he said, Rabbi Lozab and Azariah said X, and Rabbi Akiva says Y, but it doesn't. Omer, Rabbi Akiva is adding information, not conflicting information. Okay, maybe you'll argue another way. Okay, so maybe you'll say, you're right, Rabbi Akiva's coming to add something. Rabbi Loz ben Azariah said that you have to make up with your friend in order for Yom Kippur to work, and Rabbi Akiva's coming along and saying that even after you've made up with your friend, you need Hashem to purify you. We know from various sources that even a mitzvah that is between people is fundamentally a mitzvah between you and Hashem. It's not a surprise to us. We know that the only reason we have these laws about how to behave with other people is because Hashem gave us those laws. 
Why do I have Abbas Yisrael? Why don't I steal? Why do I respect older people? Because Hashem told me to. So embedded in those mitzvahs is a responsibility towards Hashem. Therefore, it's obvious that in addition to reconciling with that person, I also have to reconcile with Hashem. That's self-explanatory. Goes without saying that even after I have made up with the person who I insulted, hurt, stole from, whatever it is, I still have to reconcile with Hashem. Even Rabbi Loz ben Azariah alluded to that in the way that he said the pasuk, the, the way that he he made his statement. Look, look what it says. This is already emphasized by the words of Rabbi Lozab and Azariah. What did he say? He said, Right? That's what he said. He said, Yom Kippur won't work until you reconcile your friend, implying you still need Yom Kippur. Clearly. It's very clear that you still need Yom Kippur even after you have asked somebody else for Mechila. So our question is, why didn't Rabbi Akiva just use the same Pasuk that Rabbi Loz ben Azariah used? You cannot tell me it's because he believes differently, practically, that you do not need um, to, to ask forgiveness. That's for sure. And you cannot say that it means because he's adding that even after you've asked for forgiveness, you have to go and ask Hashem's uh, atonement as well on Yom Kippur because Rabbi Lozben Azariah already told us that. So why did he look for other psukim? And lastly, And then our third question is, why does Rabbi Akiva have to bring a second interpretation, a second uh, proof, I'm sorry, a second pasuk. So we have three questions from Rabbi Akiva. Surely he's telling us something which is self-evident from many places in Tanakh, that Hashem is the one who purifies us from our Averis when we do Tshuva. Number two, why does he need Psukim from later in Tanakh when there's a glaring pasuk in the Chumash that fits so beautifully with what Rabbi Akiva wants to say? Thirdly, why does he need two different Psukim? Babir Bozer, so the explanation is this. Let's go back to what we said in the first Mishnah. We said that the fact that a Kohen Gadol has to be married is not a Yom Kippur requirement, it's a personal requirement for his status. He needs to be married and not just married, but specifically with a view of base, so seeing the Tachris of that marriage. And practically, therefore, the Kohen Gadol has to be married for every single thing that he does on Yom Kippur, even those things that would be done on a typical day as well. It's a similar kind of theme that we see at the end of the Masechta when we talk about how atonement of Yom Kippur works. What we know from Rabbi Loz ben Azariah is that Yom Kippur is an amazing day that atones for sins. Now, we don't know how it works. It's possible that because Yom Kippur is a special day, the special day comes and erases all of our Averis. So that's what Rabbi Akiva wants to add to. He wants to add not practically what happens, but why it happens. In other words, Rabbi Akiva wants us to know that the power of Yom Kippur is not just the magical date on the calendar, but that it's a day that exposes the greatness of who we are. Again, like the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, it's not that it's a special day, therefore the Kohen Gadol has to be one notch above the normal and be married. It reveals, Yom Kippur reveals that there's something unique about the Kohen God. And you know who this man is? He's a person who sees Ishti as Basi. He sees the tachlis and purpose of the entire reason he got married. What does Yom Kippur do? It doesn't just come along as some kind of blanket amnesty. It comes along to reveal Asheichem Yisrael. What's so special about the Jews? This is Rabbi Akiva, that Yom Kippur comes along to 
to illustrate to us that the great forgiveness that happens is because of our special relationship with Hashem, which is like a parent-child relationship. He is our Father. So therefore, Rabbi Kiva doesn't want to bring the pasuk that Rabbi Lozab and Azariah brought, which just tells us that Yom Kippur is a special day for forgiveness. He specifically brings first the pasuk from Yecheska that Hashem will spray the purifying waters on us. That pasuk shows us that it's not only on the magical date of Yom Kippur that Hashem atones. There are other times where Hashem will atone. This particular pasuk is talking about in the future when Mashiach comes. The fact is it's not Yom Kippur. And that's what Rabbi Akiva wants to identify. You see, it's not just the magic of Yom Kippur. It's the magic of being Jewish. It's the unique connection that we have between our neshama and Hashem, which can never be undermined. That's where this atonement comes from. In fact, when you have a look at that pasuk that Hashem says He will spray this purifying water on us, it actually emphasizes that the greatness of the purification that will take place at that point in time is because of who we are. It's that expression of what our Chazal tell us, that even when you sin, you're still Hashem's child. In other words, it's not because we earned the atonement through our avoider or through our tshuva. That pasuk emphasizes that we are cleansed because we are who we are. The pasuk says it beforehand in that same paragraph. It says, Hashem says, I'm not doing it because of you. I'm not doing it because you earned it. I'm not doing it because you did tshuva. Doing it because you are base Israel, because you are my people. That pasuk Rabbi Akiva selects because it has nothing to do with the date of Yom Kippur as a special amnesty. Nothing to do with the place of the Kedush Kadoshim as a holy place. Nothing to do with the avoider of the Jewish people. It is to emphasize that it's because of who we are, Jews, Hashem's children, therefore there is access to atonement and purification. Therefore, by extension, Rabbi Akiva wants to illustrate that even when the special day of Yom Kippur does come around and we are forgiven on Yom Kippur, it's not purely because Yom Kippur is such a powerful day, it's because we're such powerful people. Except that that pasuk does not give us a 100% crystal clear picture that our atonement is because of who we are. Because that's talking about the time of Moshiach. So maybe it's a special time. So just like Yom Kippur is a special day, the Geula is a special period. So who says it's because we're great? Therefore, Rabbi Akiva had to bring a second pasuk, which says that Hashem is like our mikveh. There, there is no time frame associated with it. That's an open-ended statement. Hashem is always our mikveh, not only on Yom Kippur, not only at the time of the Geula. And it's even talking about whether Jewish people may not be in a good, healthy headspace or behavioral space. Nevertheless, the Pasuk says, in spite of the fact that it's not a special time, and in fact, in spite of the fact that we're not in a special state, Hashem will still, He'll still purify us. So, the only thing is we still have a question. Because Okay, so if the second passage is so brilliant because it says that Hashem will always atone for us in spite of the circumstances of time or our own stature, why bring the first passage? Just cut straight to the second passage. It really gives Rabbi Kiva's message so clearly that atonement is a factor of who we are, not a factor of what we do or which time of the year it is. And that's it. Who needs the first passage? The explanation is this. That 
there are two psukim over here. One is talking about a kind of purity, which is where you spray water. That's usually what they did with the paraduma, the water of the damachatos that was sprinkled on a person who was contaminated by a dead body. And a mikveh is where the person immerses themselves in purifying waters, which is for a whole range of other kinds of impurity. And Rabbi Kiva wants to illustrate both of those points because it's really important. Somebody has to spray the water in the first case. The person themselves has to immerse in the mikveh in the second case. And that's really important. The first pasuk that says Hashem will spray on us this purifying water, that is the purification process called spraying, hazar, sprinkling. And the mikveh obviously represents a mikveh. One of the practical differences between these two kinds of purification is that Aleph hazar, tohar, acher, First difference is, somebody has to spray the water on the impure person. They cannot spray the water on themselves, whereas going into a mikveh, a person does on their own. The second thing is that going to a mikveh does not purify a person if they had been contaminated from a dead body, whereas the hazo'ah does. So those are two important facts, and we have to explore what those facts mean in our story to illustrate the greatness of our being Jewish that is the key to our purification and atonement. So of course, purity, impurity, in addition to being a state that a person could be in in this physical world, these represent spiritual concepts as well. Submerging, immersing in a mikveh represents everything that a person can do on their own steam to fix their own problems. But when a person is in a spiritual state of not being alive, which means they're not connected to Hashem as they should be, because being connected to Hashem is what keeps you alive, then you need Hashem's help. So this is the point that Rabbi Akiva wants to make. There are certain mistakes that people make in their lives that they can correct on their own. Go to the mikveh, do your own work, do your own teshuva, purify yourself. There are other things that a person may land up in which are so spiritually heavy that a person doesn't even necessarily have the tools to be able to free themselves. So how then does a person become purified again? Sprinkling blood. Uh, not blood, sprinkling water, the purifying water. How do they get this purifying water? Basically saying, connecting to something that's bigger than yourself. Your essence is bigger than yourself. The real you is greater than your problems and greater than your failures and greater than your avarice. So this is like plugging into something higher. And that's what Rabbi Akiva wanted to prove. Rabbi Akiva wanted to prove that our purification is a direct result of who we are, not things that we have done, nor the fact that it's a special day on the calendar. He wanted to say that our purification comes from a part of ourselves that is not bound by the strictures of time. And it's not bound by the particular status that I may have in my spirituality. So therefore, that's why he first brings the Pasuk Vizorakti. That's the Pasuk of what gets sprayed onto you, not by your doing. Implying this is the Pasuk that refers the, to, to the purification that you have, not of your doing. I, but that pasuk we already identified was referring specifically to the time of the Geula, and therefore you would think that maybe only at the time of Geula do you have access to this essence of who you are. Therefore, he had to bring the Pasuk Mikveh Yisrael to say Hashem is always our Mikveh. So the Zorakti teaches me how the purification happens. It comes from a part of me that is not controlled by me. It is not contingent on my focus, intention, behavior, choices, etc. It is always there. And Mikveh Yisrael to teach me that that is always available. But that's why he brings Vazarakti first. Even though Mikveh Yisrael expands 
the application of when this could happen. Zorakti is the main Pasuk, and that's why it's the one he brings first, because it is the Pasuk that explain, explains the technology. How does Tahara happen? Not by our doing, not by our efforts. It is something beyond the conscious me. It's the essence of who I am. Now, as we've already described, we said that that kind of purification, the Zarakti, sprinkling water in order to purify somebody, which is, it implies where I'm not the one doing the work, it's happening to me without my input. So even though that is usually reserved only for the most extreme kind of impurity, death. Nevertheless, even when you go to a mikveh, you have a taste, you have an implication, you have a, a, like a, a sampling of that kind of purification. In other words, That is a big part of what Rabbi Akiva wants to teach us. Even when you're working through your own avoider and you're trying to do teshuva on your own and you would imagine therefore that your teshuva is only as powerful as you are and you can only cleanse as much as you're capable of. That's Rabbi Akiva's point. The Vazorakti technology of purification comes into the mikveh. You put in your effort and Hashem gives you a taira which is beyond your effort which is Vizarakti, which links into the essence of your Neshama. Which will also help us to understand another thing about Rabbi Kiva's choice of language, which initially actually seems a bit odd. He says, Just like a mikveh purifies those who are impure. We know, obviously, if you're saying purify, you're obviously talking about people who are impure. Why did you have to tell me? Surely it's uh, superfluous to tell us He could have just said Just like a mikveh is metahir Hashem is metahir The explanation is this Hadin ben mikveh This is beautiful Hadin ben mikveh The halacha about a mikveh is That if a person had been contaminated By let's say both a dead body and another kind of impurity. So the dead body in the mikveh is not going to help. But the other impurity in the mikveh will help. So even though the person emerges from the mikveh still tome from the other impurity, the mikveh will purify from whatever it can. So this is a fascinating concept about a mikveh, that a mikveh can erase a minor tumor even if a person still needs a different process for a more serious tumor. That's what Rabbi Kiva wants to say, not just that a mikveh purifies. But a mikveh purifies even when you still have other unfinished business. Meaning, he wanted to hint, Just like sometimes a person will go into the mikveh and walk out still carrying tumor that still needs another process in order to release it. It's in the same vein that Hashem purifies us. Meaning, a person should never think. person can very often, people often think this way. What if I only do Teshuvah for this, but I still have bigger issues that I haven't yet dealt with, things that are my real gremlins, that keep me up at night, that make me feel terrible about myself. I haven't yet addressed them. So maybe Hashem won't accept my Teshuvah for these things because I've got bigger things to deal with. Like people often think, why should I bother trying to have Kavodah Satvila if I know what I did yesterday? For example, that's exactly how it works. Just like the mikveh can purify a person from the minor thing, even if they still have to deal with the major thing, Hashem will forgive what we do to shiva over, even if there are other things we haven't yet reached the point that we even know how to do to shiva for them. Why? That's what Rabbi Kiva says, because the Abishta is the one who's purifying and atoning for us. Because the Tahara, even when we go into a mikveh, is not just the result of our efforts, it's Hashem's doing. Why are we pure? Why are we uh, um, 
forgiven, atoned for, not because of what we've done, but because we are inherently connected to Hashem. Therefore, there are no restrictions. Hashem's purification can affect us no matter what our general circumstances are, what time of our life we're in. Even if I have other things that are still weighing down on me, Hashem will forgive and Hashem will cleanse and Hashem will purify. Which gives us a magnificent lesson. A yid appears before Hashem with a request. I am not yet in a position to regret everything that I've done wrong. Because I don't have the energy for it, I don't have the time for it, I don't have the focus for it. Look how practical the Rebbe's lesson is. I have a few free moments right now. And I have certain things that are really on my mind and they bother me a lot. So I'd like to do tshuva for those few things. So a person could think, I'm being a hypocrite. Why would Hashem even look in my direction? I'm such a hypocrite. Rabbi Kiva says, you're wrong. You're not a hypocrite. You're not a failed case. You're a praiseworthy Jewish person. How fortunate are you? The minute Hashem says that any of you want to do even the slightest bit of tshuva, in whichever area of life it might be, Hashem immediately forgives and atones for that particular area. And then not only that, and then Hashem doesn't stop there just by purifying you. Now that you've made that step, now that you've done that bit of tshuva, the Ebishter helps you that one mitzvah should lead to another. That you should be able to get past all of that virus. Until each of us could become a real bal tshuva to the extent that even a great, perfect tzaddik could never reach where we are. Never stop doing one bit of tshuva for fear all the other baggage. The Ebeshter is forgiving. The Ebeshter has an innate connection with us. And the Ebeshter will help stimulate that our little bit of tshuva will lead to an incredible kind of tshuva.